And uh, the rest of us, we're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel. You know what we were worshiping this morning? And, and this has become kind of a pattern in my life that I'm grateful for, but worship becomes an Isaiah chapter 6 experience for me. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted upright. He saw the glory of God. He heard the angels worshiping holy, holy, holy. And uh, in the midst of all of that, he began to say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When he saw God in all of his glory, when he saw God in all of his holiness, he felt so unworthy to be in God's presence and to do the task that God had called him to do. And sometimes I feel that way in worship, and I'm so grateful that we sing these songs to describe God in all of his glory, to, to sing those words like holy, holy, holy that we were just singing and in the midst of that, worshiping him for who he is, we're reminded of who we are. And I feel so unworthy to stand and to preach his word or to serve him on a daily basis or to even have a conversation with the God of this universe. But yet, it's because of his grace and his love that meets us right where we are. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit that regenerates and empowers us to live for him. That he allows us uh, and empowers us and cleanses us and does all of that to make it possible for us to serve him in whatever capacity. And so I pray that you have that same experience during worship. It is a humbling experience to understand who we are in light of who he is. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit uh, about this morning as we turn in the book of Daniel to Daniel chapter 4. We're talking about, and I titled the sermon, The Insanity of Vanity. <laughs> the Insanity, we're going to see a a king loses mind here, right, of vanity because of the pride and vanity in his life. So let's stand as we read. We're just going to read the first uh, three verses in Daniel chapter 4 because we will actually cover every other verse in the chapter and also reference chapter 5 as well when we look at Belshazzar in addition to Nebuchadnezzar today. You found your place Daniel chapter 4, this uh, steadfast in the chaos is the title of our series. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's, he's naming himself that he is addressing us, or to those who would read his testimony, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth. That includes me and you, right? May your prosperity increase, I am pleased to tell you, about the miracles and wonders of the most high God, that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty is his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Father, I pray this morning that we will be so moved to humble ourselves and to exalt you in our lives. Lord, to deal with anything that prevents us from being who you've called us to be, trusting in you rather than in ourselves today. We ask your Holy Spirit to convict each heart, including the preacher, to do what you've called us to do in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. I read where then-Governor Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, was invited to speak at a conference in Mexico City. There were political leaders, there were business leaders, corporate leaders, and and people of great influence there. And Governor Reagan at that time, he told the story that he, when he was 
speaking, he was a little bit surprised that the people were not responding. He, he, he thought, man, they just don't really care much about what I have to say. And he, there was no applause of the crowd. He was a little bit humbled by the moment because he had been such a great orator. And then he, he took a seat, and then the next speaker got up. And when the next speaker began to speak, people really began to applaud. And he wanted to be a good sport, so he began to applaud the speaker as well. When the speaker would say something, people would applaud him. Then he, he, he kind of got used to hearing the language, even though he didn't understand it as well, and he began to applaud ahead of time. He was applauding the speaker and, and kind of leading in the applause uh, for this speaker until the ambassador for the United States leaned over and said, Governor Reagan, I, I wouldn't applaud so much. He is actually interpreting your speech at this time. <laughs> well, some of us are kind of like that, right? We want to, we want to applaud ourselves. We, we want to pat ourselves on the back. We, we want the applause of man. There, there's kind of a danger in all that because the Bible says that when you have the applause of man, you have your reward, right? So if you've ever kind of served the Lord in a way that you felt like, well, people don't even notice what I'm doing. Or maybe you're one of those parents who would say, I don't know what my family would do without me if God took me out. I don't know how y'all would survive, you know. Uh, we want the recognition, we want the respect, we want the applause of man. And God says, okay, if you get it, that's good. You got it, you have your reward. Um, what is it that causes us to have pride and, and struggle? Daniel's going to insert Nebuchadnezzar's words here in Daniel chapter 4. It's as if Daniel is saying, you know, uh, let, let's imagine Daniel's the pastor of the church and he says, everything I've been telling you, hey, I want you to hear a testimony. This is going to be great. You've been praying for Nebuchadnezzar? Man, God got hold of his heart, got hold of his life, listen to what he has to say. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar's word here. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was chosen by God. We've already looked at how Jeremiah prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would be God's choice servant, even unredeemed. Now keep that in mind, that even an unredeemed king was already in a position where God was using him to accomplish his purposes. He was not someone that believing Jews would have voted into office, but he was somebody that God allowed. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson, that God removes kings and establishes kings, right? And so, yeah, now listen, as believers, I do believe we have a responsibility as citizens to try to vote for and get people to represent those things that we know are biblical solid values. No doubt we have that responsibility. We also need to keep in mind that God is still sovereign and nobody arrives in a place of leadership without God's permission. God has a right to open and close doors, to establish kings and remove kings, and we're going to see that God can even work supernaturally in the life of a leader for his purposes, and maybe we should be praying more to that end. Therefore, when we understand that, anybody who is ever in a position of influence, and that's what leadership is, is a position of influence, whether you're talking about on a team, in a school, in a church, in a home, you name it, when we begin to think that we're the ones that are doing something just so awesome that we deserve the applause of man, and we get our eyes off of God and what he has done what he has allowed and what he has sovereignly established, then we become in danger. In fact, I would go ahead and say, when you start taking all the glory for yourself, that's insanity. It's crazy to think that we could accomplish it by human means. The insanity of vanity, what do we mean by that word vanity? 
Webster's defines vanity as pride, excessive pride or admiration of one's own achievements. Excessive pride or admiration for one's own achievements. So let's make about four observations this morning. Now, this is, by the way, this is going to be Bible 101. This is basic Christianity this morning. So some of you are going to say, you know what? I've been a Christian most of my life. I realize those four observations, man, that just kind of describes the spiritual life, right? That's just basic Bible truth. We, we already know that, but yet we fall into the same trap. As I share these, for those of you who have been in the faith a long time, think of the, how Vince Lombardi, after the Green Bay Packers had kind of messed things up for a couple of games in a row and looked like they had forgotten the basics of football. He walks before his team and he holds up a football and he says, fellas, this is a football. What was he trying to communicate? He was saying, man, we need to get back to the basics. And so what we're looking at in these chapters this morning, this is basic Christianity. This is basic Bible this morning, but yet it is needed today in the life of the church, in the life of a nation that was once considered a Christian nation, now calling itself a postmodern and a post-Christian nation. It is needed like never before. Here's the first observation, and it's simply the problem with pride. The problem with pride. What's the problem? It's the fundamental downfall of humanity, period. Pride has always been the problem, right? From the very beginning, you think about it even before Adam and Eve. You have Lucifer, Isaiah chapter 14. What did he say? He said, man, I'm going to establish my throne higher than God. And so he and one-third of the angelic beings are cast out of heaven. They are cast down because of high trees and saying, we're going to be above God. Adam and Eve, how did, he, how did the enemy, how did the devil come to Adam and Eve? The day you eat from the tree, you shall not surely die. God knows that the day you take of the fruit, you're going to be like him, able to discern good from evil. You can be like God. You can make your own decisions. You can be in control of your own life. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing in my palace. This is verse 4. And I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, and by, by the way, the dream will start off kind of sweet, but turns into a nightmare. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me, so I issued a decree to bring all the wise men. I don't know why he started with the same crowd. Verse 7, the magicians, the mediums, the Chaldeans, the diviners, they all came in. He should have learned from the past by now that he needed to start with Daniel, right? But finally, verse 8, Daniel named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, little g. Now, he sandwiches this with an understanding of who the true God is, but when he slips back into the present tense of the moment, he's talking about his gods. And he assumed that Daniel had the spirit of the gods. And he told him the dream, verse 9, Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, I was lying in bed and I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong and it, its top reached the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. The leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches and every creature was fed from it. And I was, I was lying in my bed. I also saw a vision 
of my mind, a watcher, a holy one. This is a, a picture of an angelic being of some kind coming down from heaven, and he called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip, it from its, le- or strip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump. There's a little bit of redemption right here in the leaving of the stump with its roots in the ground and a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human. Let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers. And the decision is by command of the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowest of people over them. So surely parts of this dream for Nebuchadnezzar really didn't need interpretation. Maybe that's why he didn't want to start with Daniel because he was like, man, this one's not so hard. I know what it's going to mean, but I want to hear something a little bit sweeter than where I think this is going. This is the dream I had. I King Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can because you have the spirit of the holy gods. He would learn later he had the spirit of the most high God. Verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment. His thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. I think Daniel probably realized that was not going to be the case, but it was so severe that he was at least in his compassion saying, man, you don't want this to happen to you. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached the sky and was visible to the whole earth and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all under the wild animals lived and its branches, the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And I can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar say, I know, I know, I know, I know where this is going. This is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and that he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be destroyed. Uh, Excuse me. Your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge heaven rules. As soon as you acknowledge what? Heaven rules. Rules. He's going to have to turn his eyes toward heaven. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right. How many of us will hear the Holy Spirit saying that to us day in and day out? Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right. 
and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy, perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. The problem with pride. Lucifer, Adam, and Eve, every human being that's ever been born struggles with pride. What is of this world? What, what gets us, according to John in his first epistle, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? It's always been a trap. Throughout Israel's history, they were warned of pride and presumption, as we'll get to that a little bit later. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way. Hating our own pride, right? According to Proverbs 13 and verse 10, pride is the source of strife. When we have conflict in our marriage, when we have conflict in our home, parents with children, children with parents, when we have conflict in the workplace, it boils down to, and, and, and in so many churches, it boils down to pride. Spiritual immaturity is to not humble ourselves and do away with our pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16 and verse 18. And in the New Testament, epistle after epistle after epistle tells us that pride can bring disunity and disharmony within the church. We want things our way, my way, right? Pride. We're guilty of pride. And as a result of that pride, sometimes we hit the ground hard. We fall as hard as Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we'll see in a moment that God's using that. But don't be like that frog. Remember the story I shared years ago with some of you about the frog that was on the side of a lake and he saw these cranes flying overhead and he thought, man, that is just so beautiful. So I wish I could fly. Then he got an idea. He found a, a stick that was about eight or ten feet long. And he went and he had a conversation with these two cranes. And he said, hey, you know, if, if you'll put one in your mouth and you, you put the other in your mouth, you guys could fly with the stick between you. I could bite down on the middle of the stick. and I could fly. And so they gave it a try. And these two fishermen are standing there when they see these two cranes flying by with a stick in between them. And this frog flapping in the wind, having the time of his life. And one of the fishermen said, man, that is genius. Whose idea was that? And the frog said, mine. <laughs> Pride comes before a fall every single time. And when we are striving for the applause of man, be careful when you think you stand lest you fall. Many times the the humiliation that comes from pride is built into the system. Now, let's make it abundantly clear. God supernaturally stepped in and brought humiliation into Nebuchadnezzar's life. We'll see that in a moment. But sometimes it's just the natural consequences that God has built into the system. What do I mean by that? I mean, God just kind of worked things out that if you're a proud person, if you're always talking about me, Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Oh, aren't I? Man, I'm so wonderful. I'm God's gift to my family. I'm God's gift to everybody around me. I'm God's gift to the kingdom. I'm God's gift. Listen, you will become a very lonely person 
You will become very, why? Because nobody wants to be around somebody who is just always bragging about themselves, always talking about, man, uh, my kids are so much better than everybody else's kids. Man, my, my, my family is just, man, my, my source of income, my this, that, it's me, I, me, my mind, it's all about me, and I want what I want, and I get what I got, and man, I wish everybody could just be as smart as I am and as genius as I am. You act that way, you'll become a lonely person. But not only that, you'll become a vulnerable person because you will not allow anybody in your life to point out the blind spots in your life. You won't let anybody get close enough to use that you can just kind of be real with a brother or sister in Christ and say, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I'm battling. Because we, we come into the church, the place that we need to be able to be real, you know, in this world of chaos, talking about steadfast in the chaos, place where we need to be real with each other, but we get out of our car and we try to act like we got it all together when we know that we were ready to beat the kids before we got here, right? We know we were struggling getting things going and getting, getting awake and getting our mind established spiritually. But pride keeps us from being real, and it causes us to be lonely people. It causes us to be vulnerable people, and then sometimes brings in the supernatural consequences of a God who is going to get our attention, whatever it takes. Secondly, I want you to see this observation, the purpose of punishment. Again, basics, Christianity 101, it's God's plan of redemption. Look at verse 28. God knew exactly what he was doing when he brought this humiliation, so he executes this sentence in Nebuchadnezzar's life. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. It all happened. As God said, it was going to happen. Listen, sometimes parents get in trouble where they keep threatening and never follow through. You know, if you do that, you're going to get a spanking. You do that. You're going to be grounded. You do that, you're going to be punished. And they keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it, and they never follow through. And they wonder why the kids are as wild as they are. And they're like, well, there's never any follow through. They don't really mean it. God means what he says, right? God says it. It happened at the end of the 12 months. As he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until, you're, until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, our staff clued me in this week. I had never heard the word furry before, so all I can say is looking like an animal was not popular in this day. This was not something that was a trend or a fad. It was something that said, Nebuchadnezzar has lost his mind, and God did that to him. God did that to him. Why? Because of his love, you're like, man, how many times I was disciplined as a kid and my mommy or my daddy said, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Usually they made sure that it hurt you more than it hurt them, right? I had somebody advise me one time, if you're going to discipline, make it count. There's no use in trying to discipline them in a way that they don't make it count, right? And so God is getting his attention. Why? Because he loves 
and wants to redeem people for his glory. God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our pride and sin in order to bring us to a place of repentance. He will allow you to suffer the consequences of your own pride and sinful choices to bring you to a place of repentance. And so Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of all this, verse 34, looked up to heaven. God got his attention. He needed to do that from the start. He needed to be looking toward God. He needed to be looking toward the Most High. He needed to be looking toward heaven. But God finally gets his attention. What about for believers in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 12, we see it. Uh, this great reminder that God says, listen, don't despise discipline. If God allows discipline into your life, he's doing something to try to get your attention because he loves you and he's going to correct you. And he goes on to explain that those who are unbelievers, those who are not Christ followers, may not have the same kind of discipline you have. And you're going, God, that's not fair. Like we as children often told our parents, it's not fair that my friends are getting away with what you won't let me get away with. And your parents often responded, what? They're not my kids. That's why they're getting away with it. If they were my kids, they wouldn't be getting away with it. But God is saying, listen, don't worry about what the devil's kids are doing. I don't spank the devil's kids. I'm going to discipline my kids. Why? Because I love you too much to let you get away with this. And he brings Holy Spirit conviction into our life. He brings humbling circumstances. He executes justice. He gets our attention. Living in immorality and things aren't going well. Be glad things aren't going well when you're living in immorality because God is letting you suffer the consequences of your sinful choices. You're neglecting time with God and you don't find an awareness of his presence. It's a wonderful thing that you miss that because if you don't miss that, if there are no consequences to that, it might be an indication that you're not really a child of God. Listen, when we're not giving faithfully and he's not rebuking the devourer, it just costs you more not to give than it costs you to give because everything in your life is falling apart. All of these are God's loving, redemptive plan to draw you back to a life of worshiping and, and knowing him. Which brings us to our third observation this morning, the presentation of praise. What happened when Nebuchadnezzar turned his eyes toward heaven? When he finally looked up, whatever form that may take, it's just this little phrase, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. Verse 34, I, I looked up to heaven. We, we don't read a lot more about his repentance under that moment of saying he had hit rock bottom and he had nowhere to look but up, that sometimes God lets you get to a place where all you have to do is look up. And my, my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High. Listen, the presentation of praise. The believer's response to grace is the presentation of praise. Praise the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Not my kingdom. It's not my kingdom. It's not my agenda anymore. It's his. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Even Job was hesitant to say that. At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. 
My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom. Even more greatness came to me. You say, oh, no, 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 here comes the pride. How did he avoid allowing this remarkable amount of influence to be restored to his life? How did he avoid slipping back into pride? Look, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens because all his works are true. He gave God the glory and the praise for doing what God had done and establishing what God had established in his life. His works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. What is our weaponry against pride? It's praise. When we begin to praise God for who he is and what he's done, giving him the glory for every good and perfect gift in your life because it came from the Father of lights, from the Lord that loves you so much that he wanted to bless you, he redeemed you, he even allowed you to suffer humiliation and humility to be the consequences of your sinful choices. All of this, the way we defeat pride in our life is praise. And so I believe that is corporately as a church when we gather, when we come into the Lord's house on the Lord's day and we, we have a, a Psalm 150 setting like we did this morning where we're praising him on the loud cymbals and the string instruments. Yes, that's in Scripture. And, and we were using everything that has breath to praise the Lord. And if you stand there, proud arms folded while I'm not going to worship the Lord. I remember hearing, I believe it was Don Balt Ziegler years ago at a conference that we had up here in the old sanctuary. And he said, we're going to get to heaven one day. And that person who folded their arms and refused to worship and celebrate, when they stand in heaven, they're not going to be able to contain themselves anymore, and they're going to get loud. And he said, oh, I wish so much that I could just say, sit down and be quiet. You didn't want us to worship this way on planet Earth. You don't get to worship that way in heaven. Well, that's probably not going to happen. But when we come in and say, I've got too much pride to worship, listen, Pastor Ben, I watched one of those videos this week. You've seen them. Georgia fan reacts to Ringo's interception. Now watch the language on some of them. But it's compilations of scene after scene after scene after scene. Georgia fans reacting to Ringo's interception. I wondered how many of those are Baptists who will never praise and celebrate the presence of a living God, but they lost their minds when Georgia sealed a national championship. They were running around the house. I mean, you talk about Baptists becoming Pentecostal, man. They were jumping the couches and sofas, running, celebrating, cartwheels and all that. And if somebody gets excited about Jesus, they say, oh, they're just too much of a fanatic. And what keeps us from worshiping and praising God? It's our pride. We just need to let go and praise him celebrate him, worship him, because we're saying, man, I'm not here because I did anything myself. I'm here because he came, lived, died, rose again, and sent his spirit to empower me to live for him. The presentation of praise, the believer's response to this grace. See, praise is even a big part of maintaining the spirit-filled life. How do we know that? Ephesians 5.18 says that we're to keep on being filled with the spirit. Oh, I get that. You read the rest of that paragraph in Ephesians 5. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, songs from the Spirit, 
Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Because when you're neglecting praise, when you're neglecting worship and acknowledging God for all he is, then you fail to see how small we are in the presence of a holy God, how unholy our life can be in the presence of a holy God, and we begin to depend on self rather than depend on God, and we fall right back into the pride trap. God, by his grace, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, right? We often consider him the bad guy of Scripture. But how does he end his words on this planet? Recognizing the Most High God, humbling himself and praising God, now, before we end the story right there, we want to deal with one other area, and it at least causes us to take a glimpse into chapter 5 a little bit and look at Belshazzar rather than just Nebuchadnezzar. Number four, the peril of presumption. The peril of presumption. What do we mean by that? We can't presume. We can't always assume there will be future opportunities. We can't always assume there's going to be future opportunities. Because what so many of us do is say, man, thank God for his grace, his mercy that's everlasting. He's always going to love me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. So that means it don't really matter what I do today, right? God is a God of grace. But look at chapter 5. Because this vision didn't end the same way. King Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, drank the wine in their presence under the influence of the wine. Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple. What are they doing here? They're throwing a party, and they're taking that which is sacred, and they're being presumptuous and say, what does God know? Does it really matter? Skip down to verse 5. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he, and this next phrase is where translators struggle a little bit because they're trying to take the Aramaic and say, okay, how can we make this sound nice? And so some say like here, he soiled himself. Others might say his uh, hip joints became loose. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it myself. He messed in his pants. <laughs> you know that? He, 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 he couldn't hold it anymore. It scared the mess out of him. I mean, that's as polite as the translators can try to say it, right? He, he lost it. Scared him to death. His knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring the mediums. Here we go again. Somebody come tell me what this means. Daniel would later, you skip all the way down to verse 25. You know the story if you grew up in church probably, but the words that Je Daniel would interpret, mene, mene, tekel, parson, mene, verse 26, means God, that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. It was a way of talking of time. It was time language. It was basically saying, time's up. Time's up. Listen, is Belshazzar going to get another opportunity? <laughs> Sorry. Time's up. Tekel means you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. 
score, you lose. Perez or parson means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, probably a form of the word for Persia. So Daniel is saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. Time's up. You lose. Your kingdom's coming to an end. You're going to die. By the way, be careful of anybody who says, and be careful you don't say this to yourself, well, I'll believe God when I see the handwriting on the wall. You don't want to see the handwriting on the wall. That means it's too late. You should have believed God already. What's the point? God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. But God is still a God who occasionally says, that's enough. That's enough. And so we make statements like, well, everyone deserves a second chance. Do they really? Listen, church, we didn't deserve a first chance. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, unworthy, undeserving. People will say, everyone deserves God's grace. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. That's why we praise him, because it's unearned, undeserved. If it was deserved, we would brag about who we are. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That not of ourselves, the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And we certainly don't deserve a second chance. Oh, does he give it? Yes. He, he often gives a second and third and fourth. Pharaoh had ten chances, right? But after the tenth, God said, that's it. That's enough. You're done. You're done. Hebrews 3.8, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in the day of rebellion. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, you keep saying no to God. You keep saying no to God. You keep saying no to God. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, and one day your heart's going to get so hard you don't respond to him anymore, and you don't hear that small, still voice anymore. Be careful not to harden your heart if God is convicting you of pride, sin, arrogance in any area in your life. Don't be presumption with the gifts of God. James chapter 4, come now you who say today and tomorrow, we're going to do thus and such. So your life is a vapor. It appears for a moment, then vanishes away. One of the biggest lies we tell ourselves, I've been guilty, right? Procrastination. One of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is tomorrow. Tomorrow. Then I'm going to get things right tomorrow. There are sins of commission, things that we do that are sinful, that break the heart of God. There are sins of omission. When God is calling us to serve him in a way or, or to do something for his glory, and, and we don't do it. To him who knows what to do and does not do it, to him it is sin, right? And because of our pride, we get into presumption. And we assume, well, thank God for his grace, we get another chance. You don't know when your last opportunity is going to be. So David prayed in Psalm 14, verse 13, I believe he said, keep back your servant from presumptuous sin, willful disobedience. When I know that God's dealing with me now, I need to respond now. I may have an opportunity tomorrow. I may not. I may not. Would you bow your heads with me? How's God speaking to you? 
with our heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. Listen, there may be someone here who said, you know, I'm going to give my heart and my life to Jesus tomorrow, next week, when I get older. Maybe some students upstairs in the student center saying that. One day, when, I, when I'm as old as my parents or grandparents, I'll get right with God. You don't know that you have that. And I'm not saying that it means that you could lose your life tomorrow. Of course we could. The Lord could come back today before this service ends. When I say that, I'm saying, listen, it, it, you could live to be 100, but the rest of your days with a hard heart, a calloused, seared conscience. Don't quench the spirit of the living God if he's drawing you. Put your faith and your trust in him today, right where you sit. Lord, I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the grave to give me life. I ask you to forgive my sin. I turn from self and I trust in you. If that's the prayer of your heart today, would you just lift a hand and say, pray for me, Pastor Robbie. The best way I know how, I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation today. I'm not putting it off. That's where I'm at. Just, Just hold it up till I see it. That's where I'm at. How many of you would say there's something that God wants me to deal with? It may be a relationship that you let pride build a wall between you and somebody else. It could be a sin of commission, a habit that by his grace he wants to deliver you from. It could be a sin of omission. You know he's got a call on your life to serve him. And today, you need to nail that down. If there's an area where you would say, just pray for me because I'm choosing to respond today, would you just lift your hand and say, I'm, I'm going to be obedient to him. I'm going to be obedient. We had some in the first service this morning that were there. Some in this service already raised their hand. Anybody else, pray for me. That's where I'm at. Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we know that nothing can separate us from your love. But yet, your word tells us not to put you to the test, not to tempt you. So Lord, we pray today that you would help us to respond in obedience and take whatever next step we need to take in our obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand as we sing this song of invitation.